Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal. Develop high-quality, technically sound products and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super-fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com The 1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard-issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. So there's a reason why I started Blood Origins. And that reason is simple. Is that I wanted to convey the truth about hunting. It brings awareness to, to non-hunters that it's, it's more than just killing animals. How do I start it? Brittany. My name. My name. Is, <laughs> Does my hair look okay? It's fantastic. My name is Mike Axelrod. Start again. Yeah, I hated it too. <laughs> Braxton, you said something in the car to me. You said that you were living on borrowed time. Mm. There's a perception around who hunters are, what we're supposed to be, and a, a feminist that works for a non-profit that is a hunter that has only eaten wild game for the last 20 years is likely not the thing that people think about when it comes to a hunter. Yep, you know, just redneckering, South Africaning. Well, welcome to the roundup. You guys just got thrown into the into amongst the wolves. Hey, <laughs> let's you, do it. You got t talked. You got uh, educated about South Africanisms, Nate. I'm actually really excited about that. Bring your microphone a little bit closer to your mouth. There we go. Now we're gonna have to. You're excited about using your South African colloquialisms? 100%. That's actually... Uh, I was trying to think about the third one. I still haven't come up with the third one yet. I'm right. You learned about just now. You learned about... Um, so to make sure I'm using it correctly. Yeah. We should start with making sure you understand them. All right. So <laughs> then you can use them. Just now is appropriate to any... Like, hey, Didi's going to call us and go, hey, when are you coming around? For dinner, I'll be there just now. I'll be there just. Oh, so I'll be there just now. Is I'll that, be there just is now. Is that now just or now. is that soon? Could be both. Okay. Yeah. Well, I can everyone roll with just it. like it just assumes like okay, it's either five to forty-five minute time span, or you know now just now now you know <laughs> you just add a little another now. It's just like <laughs> okay, just now, now. Now we're adding layers, and I'm more excited about it, but I'm more confused. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Don't worry about understanding. It. Just roll with it. Exactly. Now, there's lots of good stuff. I'll, if I come up with them, I'll text you. Like, okay, this is, you need to know this one. But you got How's It? How's It's a good one. Yeah, yeah. How's it going? How is it? How you feeling? Hey, hi, how's it? So you, you spend a lot of time, with, I am assuming, around Australians. No. No. Okay. No. Why'd you say that? Well, because you're going to Australia. 
My mother's Australian. I That's assume the dark it. side of my family. <laughs> uh. try, aren't we trying to work on like us bonding? I know. And I instead know. of just getting thrown into the so gutter, you're, all you're on the, the New time. Zealand side. Between that few, so see, the New he's, Zealand, he's, he's purposely digging now. <laughs> so, so for everyone, everyone knows this already because it's like a running joke that everyone thinks I'm Australian. Okay, number one, my mother's side of the family is Australian. It's the dark side of the family. We don't like to talk about it. No, it's not really. But to Rob's point, we don't have like collegiate sports that we like religiously follow. Okay. Or NHL or NFL or anything like that. What we religiously follow is our national team. Okay. And when they play sports. So when like South Africa is in a rugby game playing against Australia or playing against New Zealand because best used to be the best rugby countries in the world. We're not that not there anymore. But I I could remember being in a stadium. This is what freaked me out when I first came to the United States. Is that at a college football game? They're like, okay, we're going to stand for the national anthem. I'm like, okay, cool. And it was like you could hear a cricket in the audience. Like nobody was singing. Just the one person who was designated the microphone like you needed. Because in South Africa, the only time you sing your national anthem is when you're essentially going to war against another country through (laughs) sports. Right, right. So I think we do both here. Like... If there's a designated person singing the national anthem, typically it's it's quiet. But there's other times where it's like a band or it's just music yeah, playing, and then, not then like, they'll sing. You're still so. not like like getting behind it, gusto, like arm in arm with the people around you in the stadium. It doesn't have the feeling of going to war, no. This, when you, like when the Australian, this is how bad it is. When they, they line up, the teams line up, they play the, the visiting team's anthem first, so Australia anthem. There's booze in the crowd. Okay? <laughs> then when the South African anthem comes in, it's literally everyone is belting it from their diaphragms out. And it's like goosebump-inducing just like environment. And the anthem finishes, everyone goes crazy. It's like, so... <laughs> I was. I brought up Australia. So yes, not Australian, <laughs> not New Zealand. I didn't think you were Australian. South African. Before I made the assumption, Rob told me that you were South African. So <laughs> I knew I wouldn't make that mistake. But it was the like, where does the the phrase? The only Australian uh, one that I know is like the like the well, we're not here to fuck spiders. What? That that's a thing. I've never heard that really? phrase in my life okay, now, as an Australian. Now I'm Googling it. As, a, as an Australian. Wait a second. Exactly. Yeah, it's like, well, I've never heard that. And this is, a, this is a PG podcast, man. Just watch the F-bombs, man. Like he's endearing himself to this audience. Should we even introduce you or just keep you anonymous? I didn't think that we were running yet. Oh, we're, we've, been, <laughs> we've been running constantly. That's the best stuff. Comes before you think you're rolling. So, um, well, we're here in Salt Lake City, Utah. We'll talk to us about Ur- Urban Dictionary. It's definitely a thing. That's like your go-to dictionary, obviously. Well, that's, yeah. Australian and, slang, and the term is derived from another way of saying, not here to fuck around. I'm here to get the job done. Stop wasting time. We have things to do. Okay. Hi, you learn something every well, day. but now I'm wondering Where the spiders how come from? that is, right? Yeah, exactly. They've got very deadly spiders in Australia, so maybe it's something like that. 
And then... So we're sitting in Salt Lake City, Utah. I flew in early this morning, got up 4 o'clock, got to the airport, plane delayed. Um, but we got on, the, I got on a, um, it was one of, the, <laughs> it's funny how you, the lady sitting next to me, and you know how you get used to like newer airplanes nowadays, right? Uh-huh. So this airplane had like the, the, the tan colored, khaki colored TV screens. Oh, Not the new ones, right? Like the discolored ones? The discolored ones, but they were like half the size. They're tiny. Like, they're like, do you want headphones? I'm like, I'm not, e- why would I even watch something, you know? And we were joking about how, like, when I, I remember flying from South Africa to Australia to visit my mom's family, and my mom would take us, there would be one TV screen at the, at the partition. Up in the, yeah, in the middle. Yeah, for yeah, yeah, middle yeah, share. Yeah. And it didn't matter what, it was, there was, one thing playing after another for 12 hours and you either got to watch it or you didn't right you know and the headphone jack was messed up and when uh, they had the special headphone jack back then yeah they had you the had two, the you two, buy their the yeah, two, the two, the two, yeah. the two prong and then you go to radio shack and you'd buy the adapter so you could use your headphones and sneak the movie oh, for free yeah, yeah. yeah that's assuming that you chose the aisle or like the row that was close enough to the uh-huh. tv and not either too far back or right underneath it. Or you were you were that row that had the TV for the next row above your head. Yeah, exactly. And you were the furthest away from the TV <laughs> <Yeah>. screen. <laughs> so anyway, we're joking on the way here. But we got here. Um, and this is almost like a, you know, our roundup is just a day, what's happening in the world of hunting kind of scenario. So today is almost like a, a day in the life of like, what are we doing? So I flew out here. Nobody really realizes. We, we, we stopped like... I don't post as much anymore of us traveling anymore. I don't know why. I think I should. It shows how, how, much we, how much on the go we are. We get a lot of that with uh, training at Fieldcraft. Yeah. When, we, when we post everything that's going on in a weekend, people are like, You're, where like, are you? You exactly. go all over the place. Exactly. It's like so much going on, but a lot of it goes unnoticed. Yeah, so we flew out here for a specific uh, idea that we uh, brainchild. Um, good friend with DD. DD won the cow elk hunt with Blood Origins last year. That's how I got introduced to DD and Fieldcraft Survival. And then Rob and I, we met at the hunting, uh, the Western Hunting Expo, oh, five weeks ago. Yeah, four or five weeks ago. And there we hatched the plan in which a lot of people understand Blood Origins. We don't belong to anyone. We belong to everyone. We don't have any affiliations really. We don't have any partnerships, quote unquote, sponsorships, quote unquote. We just wear what we like. People who want to support us, support us for who we are. Multiple gun companies, hopefully one day multiple uh, bow companies. We actually have Hoyt that has decided to come on board. Oh, good. Awesome. Um, we uh, we met with them last week. I'll tell you a funny story about Hoyt. Um, Jeremy Eldridge is a very good friend of ours, and I've known him for a long, long, long time since we built Blood Origins. And um, I asked him, like, would you mind supporting us in the Corporate Conservation Club? And he said, no, absolutely, we'll figure it out. We'll look at our budgets, um, just like a, a good chief marketing officer would. And he came back to me and he goes, hey, you know, we'd want to do a, a yearly amount. And again, who we are authentic, I'll lay everything out. I'll be, you know, very transparent. He said to us, he said, we'll give you 1500 for the year, 2023. I said, Jeremy, that's amazing. Super grateful, super humbled. I said, but I'm in a dilemma. Because I have a hundred dollar tier that is twelve hundred, and I have a two fifty tier which is three thousand. 
naturally I want you at the 3,000. Would you consider moving to just doing 250 to make it 3,000 instead of 1,500? And his response back to me, and this is good you hearing this because <laughs> we're hitting up Fieldcraft Survival for Corporate Conservation Club. He says, what's the difference between the $100 tier and the $250 tier? And I said, I said, Jeremy, I'm shooting myself in the kneecaps here, but there is no difference. There is no difference in what we say about you, how we thank you, how grateful we are for your support, because that's who we are. If you're a company that can afford $5,000 a month in support of us, that's amazing. But I'm not going to um, say mom and pop's company X who says, we want to get involved, we love what you do, but we can only afford 50 bucks a month. I'm not going to dis you know, put them at a disadvantage because you're giving me 5000 If you feel like you need more, then I'm not going to take your money. Or you'll be disingenuous and say, well, we'll just give you 50 a month. It's the, and, and he came back to me and he goes, he goes, Robbie, he, he laughed. And then he said, it sounds like the widow's might. <laughs> That's actually exactly what I was thinking about. And it is. It's that to me, to us at Blood Origins, a Sig Sauer can give us 1500 a month. And it's, it's nothing to them. But a small little call, duck call company that gives us 50 bucks a month, it's everything to them. And we want to give them just as much kudos, just as much thanks, just as much, you know, gratefulness as we do a six. Yeah, and I'd imagine in this case, it's because the small company, that, that's all they can afford. They're doing it because they believe in the cause. Exactly. They're doing it because that's their lifestyle. Exactly. Not for the marketing and exposure as much. No. Um, that's always great. Yeah. But, and as a marketer, obviously that's what I look for. But um, there's definitely the mission and the lifestyle and who we are. And for us, we're not a hunting company. Right. Right. Um, we're a preparedness company, but hunting for us is a way of life. Um, it's Let's talk part about of who you do. are because we've not introduced you yet. So Rob Parsons, introduce yeah. yourself. So yeah, Rob Parsons. From, I'm the chief marketing officer for Fieldcraft. Been with Fieldcraft about two and a half years now. Um, where did you come from before that? Um, where did I come from? Yeah, no, uh, like job-wise, yeah. Um, I was working in a marketing agency okay. in Utah. Okay. I did that for about 10 years before I joined Fieldcraft at a couple different places. Um, and before that, I was... Uh, uh, the the local Utahns would would know, but Vivint. Um, I was a national inventory manager for Vivint, so I actually started in operations what and supply Vivint? chain manager. They do home automation, security, um, okay. and products and stuff. And so they're the ones that knock on your door in the summer and uh, tell you you need a security system, and okay, you're like, okay, okay. "Do I?" And then they they talk <laughs> you into it. Um, but I came from the supply chain operations management background, um, and then through a few career choices and moves, got into marketing and then been doing that for close to 15 years now. Amazing. Um, and so got linked up with uh, Fieldcraft when they came out to Utah. Uh, they were in Arizona before that and then moved to Utah during COVID. And I was looking for a change. They were looking for somebody in marketing. and um, Perfect fit. It, it, it worked. And so I've been here ever since, and we've kind of been figuring out a lot of things. Um, very small company feel. Mm -hmm. um, but, but you guys have got so much going, so much going on that it's, yeah. it's, yeah, it feels yeah. big. Yeah. And yeah. so, um, we all wear a lot of hats and we all do a lot of things, but uh, 
just a little bit kind of on my personal background, but I grew up in Maryland. So when you're looking at hunting, I didn't grow up hunting, didn't grow up shooting guns. Uh, I, I knew one guy, period, that owned a gun. That was it. Um, and came out to Utah for college and had some coworkers that took me out shooting and I fell in love with it. Nice. I was like, this is great. Why don't we do this? You've got a cool deer species in Maryland called the Seeker deer uh-huh. that yeah. they put into the marshes back in the day. Yeah. Um, I've, I, I joke about this a lot. It's not actually a joke, but I've killed more deer with my car than with my rifle. Oh, nice. Um, growing up in Maryland, that was, <laughs> that was the problem is every night coming home, 10 to midnight, they were always in my street. Oh man. They'd be in, 50 of them in my backyard every night, every morning. Um, and they were always in the way. And so <laughs> they, they have a real problem, though, controlling that because yeah. they don't have as big of a hunting culture there and mm-hmm. things to actually help control some mm-hmm. of that. And so I now have some friends that have gotten since taken up hunting and they're allowed to use archery in their backyards and things like that. So it's, it's interesting watching them kind of find it on their own and get int- into that um, even in the, the political climate. And you're still not a hunter in. today? No, so now I am. So okay. I started shooting guns yep. out in Utah, fell in love with it, always liked meat, and um, really fell in love with the mountains. And when you put those things together out here, it makes sense that you 100%. hunt. 100%, yeah. Um, but I was, I didn't have a mentor. Like, it was something I literally was YouTube University of, how do you do this thing? Where do I find, and like, even before the animals, how do I get a tag? Like, what do I need to do to be able to go do this? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and it took me years. Like years to figure out, okay. And so the very first year I remember I was talking to somebody, I was like, yeah, I want to go hunting. How do I do that? They're like, you missed it by six months, bud. And I was like, I missed what? Yeah. They're like, the season. you had to draw Yeah. back in, in March. And, and here we are in August and they're all just getting ready to go. And I have like, okay. And they're like, have you ever done hunter's education? I was like, what's that? Yeah. And so started with that. I was like, okay, I need to find someone to do hunter's education. Then teach me about the draw. Like, how do I figure this out? What are these points? Like, how do I, I just want to go shoot a deer. Like, point me in that direction. Um, and then finally got a tag, finally went out, and uh, didn't see a single thing. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, cool. They, they knew. I just hung out in the woods for two days, three days, whatever it was. And so... Then the next year, I was like, okay, where do I go? Like, how do I start finding them? And then I started seeing them, couldn't get a shot off. And then finally got, my, the first year I got a shot off, I, I, I shot this thing. And I am like 100% in my mind, I, I shot this deer. And it sat there looking at me for a second, ran down. And like 10 seconds later, I hear, boom. I walk down and sure enough, there's a deer that I shot at. And this 14-year-old kid with his grandpa sitting over it. And I'm like, Oh, well, like, yeah, yeah. what do you do? And yeah. Like, and I, I'll still never remember that grandpa goes, yeah, it's his first deer. And You're I'm like, sitting here and I'm like, what, 25 or something. I'm like, would have been mine too. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Thanks. Enjoy. Jeez. And hiked off. And uh, I think it was the next year that I finally do you think shot you my it? first one. No, I, I hit that thing. Okay. I was. And it was just ready to die. And the guy just ran down. It probably stopped and got shot again. Yeah. Um. They didn't let me examine it to see sure, if there were sure. two shots in it, but yeah. I'm confident I hit that. Mm-hmm. Nate, so. you're, a, you're a hunter? I am, yeah. Um, I was lucky enough to, to have my dad that would, you know, take me out and get me into it. Um, limited. It's what's funny is, like, I thought that, I mean, as a teenager, I remember being like, oh, okay, like, my dad's got this or got that in terms of, like, knowing how to do it. But then I finally, I got an elk when I was, like, 16. And then we get to where we've got to, like, dress out the elk 
and my dad is like legit on the cell phone with a friend who then puts it on speaker and tries to like walk <laughs> me through it. Figured out some way. Oh man. If you don't have service for YouTube, no, you it's make funny. A call. You talk about you know, that that's you bring that that's actually interesting because when Dee Dee shot her first elk, Brian was there, mm-hmm. I was there. And I've 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 gutted and field dressed not a lot, maybe two dozen white-tailed deer, right? So I'm fairly familiar with what you have to do. But I've never, never, I've never killed an elk. And so Dee Dee killed her elk for the, it was the first animal period that she's ever killed. And this thing's on the side of the mountain. It's like, all right, now let's do this thing. Right. And it was a white-tail, like, obviously on steroids. But watching her and Brian just, like, comprehend the size of the animal to their hunting experience six months before where they were trying to kill an elk and they were like, if we kill this where we were, we would pack out. We were done. Crazy. We would have been done. So introduce yourself, Nate. Yep. I'm Nate. I'm the, uh, the medical director for... You don't have a last name, Nate? Nate Jones. Okay. Nate, Nate Jones. Nate Jones. Uh, medical director for Fieldcraft Revival. I've been with Fieldcraft since they... Uh, I got linked up with them when they were in Arizona before they moved to Utah. Um, just as, you know, teaching different different courses. And then uh, over time, I've been able to get to do more and more. And so now uh, I get to work with Rob and the marketing team, get to, again, wear many hats, lots of training, lots of, you know, a bunch of the different projects we got yeah, going on. Yeah. I have the fortunate experience of having subject matter experts on the marketing team that we can pull in for content and for, for yes. different things. But yeah, and then they also train. Yeah, and so for it's, sure. It's both sides of the house. Uh, your background? My background is so I've been a combat medic in the Army since 2007. And lots of different roles in the Army, lots of different, uh, you know, with infantry units, with... Are you still active? Uh, still technically in the reserves. Okay. Yep. <clears throat> technically. But, yeah, yeah, you know, my uh, the, working with Fieldcraft, I end up working a lot of weekends that I would otherwise normally do drill stuff. So uh-huh. it's Sorry. a lot more fun doing the Fieldcraft stuff. Uh-huh. But uh, yeah, so but still still going. So I still get to try to stay stay current. Um, but so when you joined the army in two thousand and seven, did you purposely pick to be a combat medic? I yeah, I did. I um. My whole plan was, I was like, okay, well, you know, uh, Iraq obviously was still a big thing. And if for whatever reason, since I was a, a young kid, I was like, hey, this is, this is what I want to do. I tried to join the army a few months before that when I was 17, but my, my dad wouldn't sign for me. So I'd wait till I was 18. And then my plan was, okay, well, I'll, I'll join the army. I'll go to war. I'll come home, you know, join the army for four years, whatever the case is. Um, and as a combat medic, I was like, okay, well, I'll get my EMT certificates. I'll come home I'll be in a, and I'll be a fireman. Uh, and then I just stuck around till. What made you want to do medic? Like, is that to me, any 18 year old kid going into recruiting office is like, I want to shoot guns. I want to pilot helicopters. I want to, very rarely, I would say, someone walks in and goes, I want to be a medic. Well, and it was uh, at the heart, at the time, it was funny because, again, like the war, Iraq was just like really revved up at the time. And so. Technically, the job title was like healthcare specialist, and they show you like the, these videos, of like it was what your job's gonna be, and they showed me the video, and it had like people inside of a hospital, it had like all kinds of random stuff, and I was like, hey, that's that's not what I was talking about, um, and I I was like, when you said healthcare specialist, you told me like combat medic, like 
in the in the movies when the dude gets hurt and then they go medic and the guy comes running up with a bag of tricks like that's what I'm supposed that's to, what I want to that's do. what I'm supposed to be doing right and he's like yeah 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 like that's what it is like don't worry about the name don't worry about the title and like and the dude was lying through his teeth read the fine print well what's funny well it's like the joke is we're like we're our, we're 68 whiskeys right when the w 68w stands for like whatever you need cuz we just get sent everywhere and do everything um but that's I was, your sorry I'm like, I'm going to obviously Jack this up like you jack up South African. Yes. <laughs> is that a pl- the platoon is 68 whiskeys? That's like the job title or like the job oh, okay. code, basically. Okay, okay. And, uh, yeah, so he told me, you know, I was like, hey, man, you know, if I if I go to, to basic training at Fort Benning, which is the home of the infantry, they're, like, they're more likely to put me in an infantry unit, right? Because that's what I was afraid of was that I wouldn't get to go to an infantry unit. And he was like, yeah, 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 you'll get to go to an infantry unit. There was no way he could have known or promised like any of that. Again, lying through his teeth. But luckily, still got my wish. Went to medic school, went to an infantry battalion in an infantry company. Um, you know, it went in an infantry platoon and got to have that whole experience of being a combat medic um, with a maneuver element. I mean, and, and okay. learn, learn those ropes and those things. And then I, I went to a clinic. I worked in, on ambulances. I got to be in emergency rooms. Uh, I got to teach for a while, so lots and lots of different things. Deployed? Yep, yep, with uh, with 3rd Infantry Division over to Iraq for a year. Um, again, great great experience in terms of, of um, just a, a wide variety of, you know, seeing seeing a bunch of different things. That, again, and I, the, honestly, the, the best thing I had was great mentors the whole time, all the time. Um, super, super awesome guys that were, the guys that invaded Iraq, the guy, you know, like, uh, my PA was was a special forces medic who then became a PA and who was a PA with the Ranger Battalion before he came to us and so uh, just tons and tons of knowledge that luckily um, when I went through medic school um, I was an 18 year old kid so not paying attention a whole lot not really enough, like appreciating the gravity I think of all of it but then I showed up to my unit and I was like oh crap like this is this is for real. These guys are, um, the very first person that made me ever do push-ups was somebody that was like back in the rear from the unit because he had, he had had like an RPG blow up by his face, you know? And I was like, oh gosh, like this is, this is going to be real. And then I, and then I was terrified that I was going to, heaven forbid I go and then I, I lose somebody because I didn't know something. Correct. And so sure. I paid attention, there you, go. you know, and I was a, I had great mentors that were just willing to, to pass everything down and hey. picked up a lot. Oh, amazing. Amazing. So we're here in Salt Lake City, as we said earlier, and I approached you guys to give people the context. I was in Zim and Zambia last year. We were filming a documentary. That documentary is going to be coming out probably this summer. The first documentary, we've got three coming. The first one's called Wire and Water. And, and I don't know if I've told you this or not, but at Wire and Water, where we were in Zimbabwe, I walked in here this morning with a, a puffy. Like a Kuyu Puffy. I was wearing that in Zim. So it was like 55 degrees in Zim. You would wake up and it would be like 40s. You'd get up to 60s. But it was a cold place. And then we went, left Zim and drove eight hours and ended up in the Zambezi Valley. And with, you know, daytime temperatures were hitting 120, 122. That's a swing. Yeah. So... You know, that's where we got heat stroke. I didn't have a medical. We had a medical kit. I didn't use it. I wasn't prepared enough. 
I was like, and then my cameraman got sick. He had an infection. He had a fever. Didn't know what was going on. I said, ah, oh, you know, you just drink some water, take some Advil, <laughs> you know, kind of scenario. Got you're home. Supposedly the doctor was like, yeah, you're going on the strongest antibiotics I can give you, kind of scenario. And so I came back. Didi obviously was the contact that we had from the elk hunt. And I said, Didi, we don't belong to anyone. We belong to everyone, as I've said. But for specific things, I need to create like a partnership that is just one person. Like for like evac stuff, we're going to have to be like global rescue will be our guys. I could, there's no point in me having whatever competitor company they have to have three multiple memberships. It makes no sense, right? Who do you call? It's one person. You need one, one person. Same thing with the Zolio, you know, maybe that's the company or Garmin's the company, whatever the company is, but it's one company because you don't want to, you don't need to have two sat phones on you, just one. Same thing with medical. But there's lots of good medical kits out there. My medic, um, Safari medic, you guys, there's lots, right? There's, you know, them. there's probably two dozen, hundred. But what I needed was the ability to I felt like I wanted the ability to custom a kit, tailor it to the place that we're going every, every trip, you know, multiple trips a year, but then also understand like how to use it, have used it, have pulled it out, have, so that in the moment when shit's hitting the ceiling fan, I'm comfortable enough saying, I remember this, I can do this, I feel calm enough to execute yeah, I mean, what I need to execute. That's one of the, the biggest things is getting your hands on. Uh, I, I, I'm not a medic, right? So I don't have the, the training. I, I'm not, you know, I, I have the training. I'm not the instructor. I'm not the subject matter expert. Um, but before I came to Fieldcraft, I had the gear and it was sitting in the plastic, sitting in a kit mm-hmm. that I had never touched, never Correct. opened, and then got here and talked with Nate and talked with the guys. And it's like, okay, have you ever put that on? It's like, no. How do you do that? And then you start going through it and you start, oh, okay. Well, I got to, you know, position it like that. I got to do whatever, like, and making sure that you actually understand. Because, yeah, in the moment, it's not, you're not going to just learn it all. You have to have that training and hands-on experience. Yeah. So, Nate, we got here today. We had a Zoom call. Uh, sort of, again, day in the life of. We got here. And what did we do today? Uh, I got to introduce you to the uh, the kit that we've kind of put, toge- uh, put together. And... Uh, talked about some of the different components you so know, talk about the kit i know obviously nobody can see this so you'll have to be detailed but you know why did you build the kit the way that you built it so i because you're going so many different places right and i i wanted to try to find something that would cover uh, most of the bases um and again we you know we talked about course of action development that's the, the hardest thing is so once we have once we have the mission once we have our purpose and we have kind of our operating environment. All right, we're thinking about what is most likely to happen, what's least likely to happen, what's the best case, what's the worst case, and preparing for stuff um, all along that spectrum. So we started off with worst case, and we went through the the March assessment because this is, you know, if, we're, if we have traumatic injuries and, and we're worried about people dying because of traumatic injuries, then inside that context of the March assessment is how we would be able to find and treat them. I think a lot of people assume that trauma is going to be super obvious, 
that the injuries are going to just jump out at them at them and like that's that is uh often true but it's not always true there's injuries that you know will kind of hide from you for those that don't know why don't you explain the march assessment and what that is yeah uh so the march assessment basically is kind of our systematic process right uh m stands for massive hemorrhaging a stands for airway r stands for respirations which is basically breathing c is circulation h is hypothermia uh, and you can also lump in head injuries and uh and help Uh into the h but this kind of statistically prioritizes the things that we should do first because everything's opportunity cost if i start treating an airway i'm not stopping bleeding um so I want to prioritize the things that are going that are most likely to to have negative outcomes first, manage those emergencies, and then kind of move down the the hierarchy and If things are out of order, you're more likely to have uh negative outcomes and the 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 biggest thing is there's a difference between checking uh there's a difference between like looking for nothing and checking for something. Okay. And that's what the assessment is really about is we bring the specific tools because we're looking for injury patterns that we can intervene on. Um, and oftentimes, again, trauma, like somebody might be mangled. And if you just look at some mangled injury, it won't be readily obvious. You know, you might see that, yes, there's an injury, but what do you do about it? Yeah. Right. And understanding if it's an, actually a problem or an emergency. So that's the benefit of, of a patient assessment, which. Well, and that's what you said to me earlier. You were like. I'm this the point of this kit is to take it from an emergency to a problem back to a problem right um you know cuz and we you know we we say at Philcraft Survival all the time like we're trying to to upgrade our circumstance you know things things can be bad and then the question is, is then just how do we how do we make them just a little bit better um you know if you fell down something or if you you know all of a sudden you know were chopping firewood and sliced your leg open like that's an emergency and then put having to put a tourniquet on well now you're not bleeding to death like you still have this gnarly open gash and that's a problem but i'd rather have problems obviously than emergencies (laughs) and uh so again the the goal of trauma medicine is to find and treat all injuries and without an assessment what's the likelihood that you're going to find the injuries to even have the opportunity to treat them um consistency is accuracy and so the, the March assessment also gives me a consistent pattern process. It gives me something to hold on to. Like traumatic situations are chaotic. There's things that will demand your attention. And stress is like a, it's a cognitive load. You've only got so much bandwidth. And so when people ask you things like, oh, you know, should we do this? Or even what are you doing? You, almost, you don't often get to just ignore it. You don't have to answer it, but it still like permeates your, your, your consciousness. And so, but, and having that assessment to return to your, your focus can almost then can drift. You can answer that question and come back to what you were doing without duplicating effort or being inefficient or skipping steps. Um, And again, so these are all the benefits of having this assessment piece. And that is to me, the real skill, the real tool is, is actually being able to find the injuries. And then when you find them, it's just a matter of having the tools available to treat them. But that's the great thing is if you find them and understand the physiology, the physiological processes behind them, you can improvise the tools. You know, it's great when you have them, but you don't always need them. Yeah, but I wouldn't have those tools. To, I would just have this tool. To improvise. Well, Correct. And, well, and, and 
um, you know, and and this is all the theory, all the knowledge to know how to improvise. Correct. Well, and and so that and which is the uh, it goes back to the training piece, and really kind of how we build a lot of our courses is um, it's it's great when we have all of the tools, but I used to um, I used to do this with with medics all the time because combat medics in the army specifically are so reliant upon their bag of tools, like their, their, their tricks. So I'd tell the story. I would say, Hey, um, you know, imagine I'm going surfing, right? It's probably my, one of my single greatest passions in life. I'm going surfing and I get into it somehow with a shark, right? Shark takes some exploratory bite and bites off half of my arm. I'm surfing in this super remote spot in the middle of nowhere. Um, Somehow in the kerfuffle, I lose my, my surfboard, my leash, my board shorts, and I wash up onto the sand, and now I'm just bleeding out into the sand in my birthday suit. What do I do to stop the bleeding? Well, right. And medics are like, um, you can use your board short rope. Your le-. And I was like, no, I told you I lost that. Well, you could use your surfboard leash. No, I told you I lost that. Oh, you could find a towel. I'm like, I'm not by my stuff. The current carried me down away from my stuff. Like, what do I do? And they're constantly like trying to find the thing, right, that they can use. And then I'm like, how about I put pressure on it and I raise it up? You know, I, I give that example all the time uh, when I'm teaching seminars and stuff. I'm like, hey, everyone here right now has two things on them to stop bleeding. And they're like, oh, my hands. I'm like, well, you're half right. Or they're like, um, my belt or my shoelaces. Or they're yeah. trying to think of the things as opposed to like, oh, no, no, like I've... Elevation and pressure. I've always got pressure and elevation. That should uh-huh. be the, the immediate action drill for bleeding. Because uh-huh. if you're not around your tourniquet, which most people aren't, but you can then intervene right away to do something about it and start already changing the trajectory of how this event's going to go. So understanding, uh, putting that into context, of, again, of inside of this assessment of what is the problem and how does it get fixed opens up the ability to find these opportunities to intervene, or when you know that a chest seal is basically just a non-permeable dressing, you know, or, you know if, if water can't get through it, then neither can air. If I'm trying to seal a chest wall again, I've got things like, um, you know, the other plastic inside of my kits that I can jump to. I can cut that stuff down, and now the chest seals that I have multiplies. Or if I don't have any of that, then water can't get through my hand. And it's labor-intensive, but I'll stick my hand on the hole uh-huh. until I can get to, the, uh-huh. get to the tools. But you have some tools here that we have come, and you said, all right, Robbie, these are the things that we're going to build, and we're going to build a kit that's specific to take care of the thing that is life or death that you're going to be encountering, which is trauma. Right. And wounds, big wounds, puncture wounds, potential accidental discharge of a gun, um, larger lacerations, that kind of stuff, right? Uh-huh. Yep. And so uh, starting at the top of the assessment, so if I'm checking for massive hemorrhaging, the number one cause of preventable death is bleeding from a compressible hemorrhage, right? A, a hemorrhage that I can actually put, you know, put some pressure on and do some... So that's why we have... Uh, the soft T uh, for a tourniquet to be able to handle all the massive hemorrhaging on an extremity. Then we grabbed an Elias Hemcon pressure bandage. That, that way we have our packing gauze and our pressure dressing in one complete system to keep it super compact, lightweight. We're able to fit more items because, again, um, we're trying to 
to not stuff this full of things, and we want right. to, we want to keep it lightweight. Right. You got some gauze, potentially some extra gauze. Yep. Gauze is just too versatile an item to to not include it in there. We have some gloves. Yep. Gloves. No gloves, no love. No glove, no love. That's the rule. Yeah, I remember that from earlier. <laughs> chest, and then chest seals. Chest seal. Yep. And with the that, and then the the trauma blanket. That basically gets us through a full March assessment. Um, a lot of people don't think hypothermia is going to be a problem, but even in extreme heat, uh, in extreme heat in hot environments, I'm still worried about uh, when your body when you lose massive amounts of blood, your your body's losing the essential new, uh, force that it needs basically to be able to regulate your body temperature. So even in warm environments, I'm trying to aggressively prevent hypothermia. We've also got so that that survival top. We've also got got a much smaller survival blanket, right? That's that. Yep. That convection conduction keep people warm. Just having that thin mylar layer will help reflect uh, reflect some of that body heat or or try to trap it. And is again something is better than nothing. And so you know we talked about having built having a team bag, a team bag that can be carried inside of a backpack, or you're, again you're never you're only so far away from a vehicle, and yeah, we do this, you know, in our in, in Fieldcraft Survival, where we, hey, there's your EDC, and there's the things that you carry on your person, and then there's maybe your backpack or your your rucksack, which you know stuff that you additional capability, and then mobility, like our vehicles, and our vehicles are an extension of our rucksack. And now, when I get to a vehicle, well, now the the opportunities should be far more, wi- you know, uh, wide ranging, and the tools that we can bring, we can really upgrade our circumstance, bring a whole lot more things because now we have the space versus again, when you're hunting, walking around, you've got competing priorities. You have all your hunting kit, you have, you know, all our camera kits. Right, exactly. Right, right. So we needed a kit that was lightweight. So we've got an Everly stock bag that they send. They've got a little medikit bag that we asked them to send down with a tourniquet on the outside. We've got some shears, some medical shears. Why do we got medical shears? So instead of a knife, won't we be carrying a knife? If you have a knife, then uh, you certainly can use them. The reason I like the shears is because uh, it's it's a safer option, you know, to be able to, if you're going to try to open some of this stuff, some of the stuff. Especially stuff's... in like a crazy scenario, right? Exactly. Shit's hitting the ceiling fan, everyone's screaming, yelling, whatnot. So Blood the last thing you want is a knife. Blood everywhere. Oh, yeah. And and uh, there's uh, there's some great videos that I'll have to send you of, of even police officers and different people that they pull out. That's their utility tool is a, is a knife but um i was watching there's a, a like a one month or a, a one year old baby that had been cut by someone with a knife that was bleeding he's putting on a tourniquet on the arm and then he's going to grab gauze and he's going to cut the gauze with the knife right there with the baby like on mm. the hood of the car um and it maybe sounds scarier than what it actually is but you can see these knives come out in these environments and you're immediately like oh whoa like the situation gets more dangerous because of what's being added to it. Yeah, yeah. So anyways, trauma shears, having these utility items will multiply. The stuff that is in here will be able to do more good because we can, you know, cut down, we can cut gauze into multiple segments. So if you've got lacerations maybe all up your arm, you can treat multiple locations. Mm -hmm. And then finally here we have a, actually not finally because there's another piece that goes in here. You got a safety light. Um, Yep, uh, our uh, our glow a glow stick, stick chem light chem light. Yep, uh, and I just I put uh, light sources in every single kit because 
I never know for sure that I'm going to have my light source. Uh, having ones like this that I that are designed specifically to just sit in here until I crack it versus your headlamp could have run out of batteries later that day or, yep. you know, whatever the case is. So the kit has a dedicated light source. Um, we talked about tying down the shears and with that cordage, you can st- uh, set that on top of the, tie it to the chem light, spin it around. If you had to like signal for help, give away your location or whatever the case is. But having a, a, a glow stick, a chem light, just even for ambient lighting to be able to look over the, the, the patient, the casualty, to try to find injuries is, is extremely helpful. We've got the triangular bandage, the cravat. We've also got the, another set of gauze, right? Right. This one right here for sprains and splints and that kind of stuff, yep. right? The, uh, the ACE wrap, or we, oh, they have specifically, it's uh, control wraps, but it's essentially an ACE wrap, but it has roll stop that's been added to it, um, which is essentially every... Every six inches, four to six inches or so, there's Velcro lining in there to stop the whole thing from rolling out. So, in a crazy, Which everyone has freaking had yeah. a bandage roll out and try and roll it back and it's try and get it under and it twists and it's nonsense. And, and that's even without people dying, you know. Mm, and then exactly. And with when the situation is even more intense, you're trying to go fast. You've got that adrenaline dump. The odds of that whole thing just spinning out on you is not good. Then we have the, what is this? We didn't play with this a lot today. We're going to play with it tomorrow. Yep. So this is the Rise Splint. And the reason I like this uh, is because it's just as versatile as like a Sam Splint, which is less compact uh, than what this one is. This one folds down a lot smaller. Interesting. You know, sprain, strains, falls, different things. It's made out of plastic. Yeah. Yeah. And, and again, it's... Um, it's got these uh, those 45-degree clips and angles, so that way you can do a variety of different splints, some of the most common ones for wrists and ankles, and okay. I mean, really even the leg, but it's yeah. just enough rigidity, and with that, with the control wrap, will be able to stabilize an injury enough to be able to do to walk out, to have you know a bumpy road of transport, and try to minimize further injury while, while you're traveling from place What's to place. The, I, I noticed this earlier, I didn't ask the question, what's the plastic thing here for? Oh, okay. So um, I'm, I'm talking about the hemostat thing. We've just un, um, the Elias dressing. The Elias dressing. There's a big plastic cup on the top of it. So, and the the cup is because there's a lot of pressure dressings out there that have either a tension bar that you'll go through the tension bar and then go the opposite direction so it holds tension on it. Oh, like that. Uh, it's, well, this one specifically is going to go straight down because you... Oh, you want pressure. You're using that cup as putting a pressure directly into the, into the wound that you've stuffed and packed. Exactly. So then oh, it's that pressure all the way out even more so. Because, again, the whole point of, of pressure to stop bleeding is to be able to kink that, that damaged blood vessel like a hose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then we talked about... So that, this, is, this kit is going to be... We're going to have one for each member of the team. The kit is yours. If I went down, you're using my kit. You went down, we're using your kit. Right. Yeah, exactly. If, if you and I are hunting together and you go down, I'm going to treat you out of your kit and you're going to treat me out of mine. And the reason for that is because I don't want to, to treat you out of mine and then either I'm... Exa- like Something yeah. happens. Exactly. Right, exactly. Now I'm without my own, my yep. own stuff. But the, then we, have, we talked about just like what do we have at base camp, right? And the majority of the stuff that's going to be at base camp is going to hit on those H's. Right. The, uh, not just the H's, but um, 
the you know specifically when you when you talk about having the heat stroke and stuff like that so uh the best medicine is preventative and having um additional resources inside of the team bag right where someone uh you know what we don't want to overdo is pack a trauma kit so you know like we talked about like having band-aids this has a specific purpose this is a trauma kit purpose right it's not meant to hold a thousand band-aids yeah and you don't have time to go somewhere to get this Yes. And so it's on your person, Correct. but you can't carry everything. Correct. So that's where the team bag comes in, where you, you do have a little bit more time. You can carry a little bit more gear. Uh-huh. Right. And and so if you're, you know, you're out there, you know, I don't know, whittling or in, in the woods, I don't know, whatever. That's what we hunters do. We yeah, whittle like, in the woods. <laughs> yeah, know, yeah. And uh, you cut yourself, being able to go back to camp or whatever. I mean, you and you can keep stuff in your own bag, but it's but having an extra like supply point of of band-aids, of steri strips, of stuff to clean wounds, um especially for durate uh long durations in the field, then having a resupply point of some of those med items is is a is a big deal. Or again, when if someone does go down, now the whole team is working together and there's a centralized uh, a centralized point of Someone goes down with heat stroke. All right, we'll go get the team bag because it has the ice packs in it, and we can start actively cooling somebody down. And then you have the opportunity to multitask a little you, bit. You talked about ice and heat packs earlier today, um, and I didn't ask you then, but I'll ask you now. I remember what number one. The question to you is like, what are you talking about? Because I remember, and maybe this is it. I remember back in the day, you could buy these heat packs that had like a button. Mm. And you'd you'd mash the button. It would get it would get hot, and then it would get hard, and then you could almost like I can't remember now. You had to put it in water, or you had to do something to reset it, and then it was good to go again. Oh, if I mean the fact that it's reusable is the, that's always like best practice because otherwise, the, a lot of the ones that I used my whole career were all one time use. It was a hot pack that you you know I mean you smash it once you let it weigh a little bit for the chemical mixture but then it heats up or it cools down or whatever you're talking just like hot hand stuff right the the Not, the powder stuff or you're talking about liquid stuff I'm talking about liquid stuff inside okay. inside of those that that you could use um but again for cold environments even especially cuz we we dump and uh, and accumulate heat a lot like through our our hands um having like uh, like EMS now I was using like cool cooling gloves to put on top of people to start sucking the heat out mm. of them. More so than back in the day, we would do things like ice sheets, which we're learning are kind of counterproductive. But, you know, having these extra tools to be able to deal with, um, or even, again, just basic medications. You know, where does the team keep all of that? Right, in the team bag. You know? Yeah, and those are the things that we've never thought about. I've never thought about them, but we're going to more and more locations that are more and more remote. Like New Zealand doesn't seem like remote, but we're gonna helicopter in to the back country into a hut. You know, something happens. You're not getting out of there very quickly. Yeah, and th- and right. that's one of the things we talked about when looking at kind of the specifics of of this kid is you're probably going to more remote locations than most people. Correct. Right? And so, um, if I'm, you know, at the park next to my house, the time for a higher level of care to get to me is pretty short. But if you're out in the remote wilderness in New Zealand, you've got to be able to stabilize yourself for a long period of time. Correct. Potentially hours, maybe a day. Yep. Until somebody can get there. 
And, and those evacuation platforms, you know, like, like taking a long time to get out is one consideration. The other consideration is the fact that you're really deep in there. And so coming out is really inconvenient. And so the more you can bring with you to be more self-sufficient, to manage, you know, your stomach being upset, you know I mean, or, you know, you don't want something like a, like a scratch that, yeah. you know, to, to be something that takes you out of the field because you don't have anything to clean it and you're, and you're going to get a staph infection. The preventative stuff you were talking about. Right. Yeah. I need to write that all down. Like I need to sit you down with this phone in front of me. Cause like you just said stomach stuff. So I'm like, okay, like I don't have Imodium. Right, right. You know, I should have a thing of Imodium yeah, and, and, in the team bag. Right, you know, and, and, and having like a, so we call it like a basic um, sit call formulary, right? And that's like, okay, you know, my sit call formulary is going to be the Tylenol, the Motrin, the, you know, the Imodium, the Benadryl, the this. I mean, because even then eating something weird or brushing up against the plant that you yep. just found that gives yep. you some type of weird reaction. Mm-hmm. Um, even again, your your feet being saturated, you know, being able to to dry out your feet, being able to, um, again, manage, we, so we, again, we call it disease, non-battle injury, but it's like being out in the elements will just absolutely 100%. tear down your body. And if you don't have the stuff to, to refresh, to resupply and mm-hmm. stuff like that, you'll yeah, just... that's a good idea. Well, yeah, let your feet go down. I mean, and then how how mobile are you? And then how, what's that going to do to affect your and success? I need to just keep this thing out and just keep taking. <laughs> but that's the thing. Like now, it's getting like you know, like blister mole stuff, right? Mole skin, yeah. Mole skin, exactly. Um, yeah, yeah. That's and and exactly. And so, and this is you know, like when we were on the Zoom call and we were talking about, um. You know, okay, well, like training, for example, you know, or what, what stuff we're going to put inside of the kit or then in the team bag. Well, once we start talking about a sick call formulary and what those meds are going to look like and, you know, hot and cold weather injuries and stuff we're going to bring for that or dehydration electrolytes uh-huh, uh-huh. And, and foot care and, um, or even wound, wound care. You know I mean, and being able to clean and sterilize all these different things for, for wounds, it's like, it adds up fast. Sure. And so, um. But, you know, and for combat medics, that's kind of what our bread and butter, though, is, is we have, we're one medic for 30 people and we're out in the middle of nowhere. And that's what we're managing more day to day is, is typically not trauma. It's more of the medicine. It's more of, you know, hey, that, that person's, you know, you're like the mother hen running Correct. around. You're like, that person's not drinking water. Yeah. That guy, get, he didn't take his meds. Yeah. You know, he's not getting any sleep. That guy, the very first person, that, the very first casualty or casualty patient I had in the field walked up to me and said, hey, doc. My uh, my piss looks like Coke. Jeez. I was like, what? <laughs> I mean, I'm an 18 year old kid who like I get barely made it through medic medic school, and I'm like, well, that's not weird. That's not right. That like that's weird. You should get that looked at. <laughs> yeah, you should probably talk. You should to find to someone. <laughs> yeah, you talk, talk to someone. someone. This is a messed up stuff, dude. Jeez. And then it turns out, so I mean, he's and he's in you know rhabdomyolysis. It's like he's his. Uh, because he's only drinking Red Bulls out there. He's not drinking water, and we're moving around in the field. And even when you are dehydrated, like uh, even there's a buddy of mine, we were doing a, a Soldier of the Year competition, a friend of mine competing, and I watched him go down. And uh, I was, I mean, the dude's, I mean, running, running with a rucksack on, he's got a camelback, he's been sipping water, but this is a four-day-long, like, four-day-long competition of us just grinding it out. This is the last thing we have to do, and I watch him go down, 
Luckily, there's people there to get him. Come to find out that the dude just ran himself into the ground. Same thing, rhabdomyolysis, his CK levels were sky high. Like, um, you know, he's about to have, you know, organ failure. His internal, you know, his core body temperature is, is crazy high. It's like 104, 105, something wild, just from running himself into the ground. Crazy. So the rest of today, we're going to get a phenomenal Louisiana cuisine from our hosts here in Salt Lake City. Uh, then tomorrow's all day training. Oh yeah, on the kit itself. Um, so, yeah, well, I appreciate um, appreciate you giving the insight to what we're doing here and how we're doing it. Uh, appreciate the partnership. Appreciate Absolutely. you joining the Corporate Conservation Club. We'll have that discussion. <laughs> <laughs> and now, now that I know a few things. No. <laughs> um, but yeah, we're excited. It's I'm really excited about this specifically. I am because I'm gonna like even. Beyond the trauma kit, just knowing that I can I can really strategize on what the the team kit looks like now, yeah, and have it all dialed. That it's just like we have everything we need. We've thought through it already. It's not just haphazard, right? You know, oh man, I wish we had X. Oh, I wish we had Y. No, we've thought about X and Y, and it's with us, right? Exactly. So, one of the things that we should do, you know, just to make sure everything's functioning right, is all go out on the hunt. Oh, yes. And then just make sure everything's good to go. 100%. you got to test your gear. Yeah, you can, well, And you got to do it in the field, too. I right? already talked to Didi about so, that for this year. Hey, I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, boys. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Well, that's it for today. Appreciate you listening, as always. Leave a review, share it with your friends, and most importantly, do what's right to convey the truth around hunting. Brave anglers search for the one they call king, but who will take his throne? Tune in to Waypoint TV's Battle for Silver, Saturday, May 18th from 12 to 6 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Abyss Battery, Waypoint TV. Join Captain Justin Leake and Meredith McCord for the best fishing action along Panama City Beach. Tune in to Chasing the Sun every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV.